You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 42 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. And so the big news this week... Um, which almost goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway, was uh, the the stunning defeat of uh, of the UAW in Chattanooga. You know, suffice it to say, um, everyone's talking about it because it is seen as a pretty symbolic and, you know, actual defeat for uh, efforts, longstanding efforts by the UAW to unionize the South. And of course, um, the South is, as we've mentioned before in this podcast, um, one of the places um, that has traditionally been union free and that uh, a lot of organizers uh, particularly the labor left, have been trying to break into without much success in recent years. And the UAW, depending on how you want to look at it, um, was either just another in a long string of defeats or um, perhaps a turning point that will make everyone question the utility of things like, you know, neutrality agreements, um, what the UAW has been doing in terms of positioning itself with respect to management, and generally its organizing strategy all across the South. Um, uh, there are a couple people who did write uh, pretty cogent analyses of it. Um, I, I thought uh, Rich Hesselson's piece in Jacobin was um, pretty interesting in the sense that he took a sort of historical view and looked at some of the reasons why it was not uh, a perfect set of circumstances and why organizers might have actually taken a number of factors for granted and, um, you know, maybe neglected um, some certain aspects of organizing the South that ended up being a lot more challenging. And in a way, he raises the interesting point as to whether um, the fact that management was neutral in this situation might have been to the union's detriment. But of course, we could go on and on for many hours or even days about all the various different factors that militated against the UAW. Yeah, I mean, and as our comrade Mike Elk points out, the Neutrality, which A, was not entirely neutral because there were plenty of managers on the shop floor who it reported were very active parts of the no to UAW campaign, and also that when you agree to essentially work with management, you have to work that much harder to sell to the workers that your union is going to actually bring them something. I've reported a little bit on the campaign that the UAW is running at Nissan plants where working conditions are reportedly a lot worse than they were at VW. And while they certainly haven't won there either, the workers there in the plant in Smyrna, Tennessee, for instance, are very aware that their working conditions could be better. Um, So I also sort of want to perform a, a slight like downworthy on this whole thing because There have been wins in the South. There have been organizing wins in the South that we have talked about on this podcast. And I don't think that we should take this as indicative of the future of either labor unions or organizing in the South. I think that this is a very specific campaign that had very specific circumstances that maybe were not handled as well as they could be. There are lessons that the UAW in particular and unions in general can take from it. But I don't think we need to be wringing our hands about how it's absolutely impossible to ever organize successfully in the South, because that's also just not true. Right. And And as we say, as I talk about organizing in the South and people who are organizing in the South, I got a piece up this week about port truck drivers who, well, it's a new report out from Change to Win looking at the way, well, looking at massive wage theft in the port trucking industry. And for this piece, I spoke to a bunch of workers at the port of Savannah who are shockingly organizing. Um, And because they're independent contractors, they can't form a union. They don't actually have the right to bring this to an NLRB vote like the workers in VW did. But they are, in (laughs) fact, organizing work. They have gone in support of a strike of so-called independent contractor port truckers in California. Um, There are, of course, workers everywhere who don't have unions who might want them. And neutrality is not in the offing for those Ooh, no. Well, neutrality, well, like I said, they can't have a union election, so neutrality is not an issue because they're not allowed to have a union. Yes. So the report 
estimates that some 49,000 of this country's 75,000 port truckers are wrongly classified as independent contractors, meaning that they should be getting wages rather than having all of the costs of doing business taken out of their pockets. And I've talked about the port truckers on this podcast several times because I'm sort of obsessed with this industry that was deregulated early on in the 80s and has ever since sort of been this microcosm of the the great risk shift of all of the risks of doing business onto the backs of workers rather than shouldered by the employers, which, you know, is this whole mythology of the entrepreneur that people like to cling to, right? That, you know, businesses make the money because they take the risks, except these days they've outsourced all of the risks and are just taking the money. Um, I actually have a piece up this week about um, something going on, a, a, a different kind of outsourcing uh, um, on the other side of the world. But uh, this time it's actually um, run by uh, our own very own armed forces. Um, so in case you didn't actually um, know this, you might see, you know, Marine Corps logo branded gear, um, you know, turning up uh, in various retail outlets and sort of being part of the sort of sportswear marketing arm of the uh, of the military. And it turns out that the military actually runs a pretty extensive network of clothing lines um, and other sort of branded manu- um, manufactured apparel um, that is essentially produced overseas under the same circumstances that much of our fashion is. Um, so in other words, the armed forces are indirectly running sweatshops um, in places like Bangladesh. So, you know, while you may associate the U.S. military with, you know, war bombs and other terrible human rights atrocities, um, you can add to that labor exploitation now. So according to a new report by the International Labor uh, Labor Rights Forum, the armed forces basically operates more or less like a lot of private multinational fashion brands, such as Walmart. Um, And in fact, they seem to adhere to even more lax labor policies in the sense that they use the same sort of corrupt third-party fake auditing system that the Walmarts and the Gaps of the world rely on, um, but they basically um, have even less oversight because they just rely on Walmart's third-party auditors. They don't even have their own fake auditors. Um, So um, by piggybacking on those... uh, uh, types of rubber stamp approvals of the factories abroad, they can basically give a pass to conditions that include, you know, massive wage theft, uh, coercive labor conditions, physical and verbal abuse, um, uh, drastic suppression of the right to organize, work weeks that are up to 80 hours, um, and all sorts of other other sweatshop-like conditions like that. And um, sadly, the U.S. military um, has turned a blind eye, more or less, to some of these conditions. Um, Representative George Miller has been instrumental in trying to push through some congressional oversight, but um, it's an actual sort of an interesting intersection between uh, the federal government, namely the armed forces, um, sort of seen as sort of a sacrosanct um, aspect of our federal government and um, the fast fashion industry, which is also operating on the similar kind of impunity. Um, If they could actually push through stronger congressional oversight, then they might be able to curb some abuses and spur through further changes in the industry. But unfortunately, um, those efforts have been stalled in Congress so far. Um, And I guess you can expect as much from an institution that has basically gotten used to writing its own rules and then breaking them with impunity. So the latest from athletes who have decided that they're not just in it for the game, for love of the game, um, three former major minor league baseball players have sued major league baseball this week. Um, That might sound confusing, but the minor leagues are, of course, owned and operated by Major League Baseball teams, the farm teams for the pros. And they're alleging that they were underpaid for their labor and exploited by the teams, um, by the agreements that they're forced to sign with the teams. So these are three former players say that they often get paid less than $7,500 per year, that they're required to do unpaid work in terms of publicity, that the player contract that they are required to sign prohibits them from trying to play for other teams that might pay for more, in essence, restricting their bargaining power. And this is not really surprising to anybody who pays attention to these sports, right? We think of, when we think of pro baseball players and salaries, we think of people like Alex Rodriguez, who make a ridiculous amount of money by any standards. But the fact is that there are a lot of people out there who are risking the same kind of injury that people like him are for very, very little money. And this is all part of something 
I wrote about at The Week magazine this week um, of more and more athletes are challenging this idea that they should do this work for the love of it and that it's not work. Um, it's very clear that somebody is profiting handsomely off of the work that they do and they are saying, hey, maybe we deserve to have a better share of that. So um, good luck, guys. I will keep an eye on this story as I do many, many sports labor stories because we're rooting for you. Exactly. Yeah. And um, while we're going to be talking about uh, lots of teacher labor action going on in Oregon uh, later in our main discussion, but um, as a little preview to that, um, I've been following some of the uh, teacher strike that um, has been ongoing for the last couple of weeks in Medford, which is um, one of the largest districts in Oregon. And, uh, you know, while the Portland teachers have been struggling over their own contract negotiations, the teachers uh, in Medford actually went... uh, full out into a strike and this was after reaching you know an impasse following um, months of labor negotiations and the big sticking point as you will see in many teacher labor struggles as of late um, was essentially you know working conditions and teacher autonomy Um, naturally the district tried to spin it as if the teachers were only looking out for their own wages and benefits but um, frankly the Teachers actually, um, they they waged a pretty successful campaign in which they engaged a lot of students and local community members in support of them uh, while they were actually out there picketing. And they pretty much made the case that it was not just over, you know, simply their compensation, but over the whole package of what their jobs were like every day. And they believed very strongly that the massive cuts that the district had suffered um, and the fact that teachers uh, were losing a lot of control over the circumstances of their work and things like prep time and um, other um, things that actually have a a bearing on the academic experience of students, that everyone's, uh, the teaching experience was suffering and the learning experience is also suffering. Um, and, you know, in terms of wages and benefits, um, as we'll see with the you know, Portland teachers, uh, essentially they just basically wanted to maintain their overall compensation levels. But along with that, they really felt like, you know, they, had, they were suffering due to things like insufficient um, time to prepare to, you know, give their children a quality lesson. Um, and, of course, the district then uh, bit back and, you know, decided to, quote, respond to the strike, which basically means hiring a bunch of scabs. Um, and, uh, you know, that the wisdom of that decision was called into question um, earlier this week when some teachers on a picket line uh, cited uh, a, a car that was being driven by a substitute teacher that evidently pulled up right next to the picketing teachers and um, seemed to sort of be menacing them on the picket line. So, obviously, there are some issues. Uh, regarding how well run the strike response was. Um, And um, hopefully uh, this week or next week, they will be coming to some sort of reasonable compromise. Um, But we're going to run a clip for you now from uh, the campaign that was run by the striking teachers about why they're out on the picket line. And you're also going to hear from some community members as well. My job has gotten harder. My days have gotten longer. And my pay has gone down. We're not asking for much. We're asking for something. My kids are students in this district. They deserve better than this. My daughter is almost two years old. I'm doing six weeks, and I'm standing on a picket line. This is the 29th year that I've worked in this district. It's my 31st in education overall. This is by far the worst year that I have ever seen. I'm doing this for the profession of teaching and for the young teachers who are just coming up. Give me and other probationary teachers a reason to stay in this district. My contract starts at 8 o'clock and I get to work at 6.45 every morning. I'm here because it's bigger than me. It's bigger than just Medford. It's all of Oregon and the teachers deserve fair pay. I teach over 120 kids a day at five different schools. I came out of biochemical research and teach chemistry to, to Medford's youth. If you want to keep people like that around, you're going to have to appropriately You can't take my retirement. That's not fair. The district want to take away prep time. We need that thinking to produce the best lesson plans for our kids. When I retired from the military, I thought uh, I wasn't going to be able to ever find a group of teammates that would work so hard towards a common goal. And then I was fortunate enough to become a teacher, and I found that group. And unfortunately, my new battle buddies were getting disrespected at a level I don't even understand. And so make no mistake... My teammates and I, we have the resolve to see this through (laughs) to the end. 
And that was a clip from some striking teachers in Medford, Oregon. And now we take you to another part of Oregon, um, Portland, which is often the sort of butt of jokes lately about Portlandia. But like many of the other schools that we've, school districts that we've seen having contract battles with their teachers this year, many of the issues remain the same as in Chicago, as in places in Massachusetts that I wrote about and talked about recently, um, as in right here in New York. You're talking about, of course, poverty and inequality. The teachers narrowly avoided going to a strike, which would have happened today, as we are recording this on Thursday, when a last-minute deal was struck after a marathon 23-hour bargaining session. And I spoke to one of the teachers from Portland's, uh, from the Portland Association of Teachers shortly after the news had come out that there was a deal. Um, Elizabeth Thiel is a ninth-grade English teacher, and she spoke to me about what they were facing, what they think about the deal, and what they have learned from Chicago, from their own struggles, and from other teachers around the country. So where does this leave things with there, there being a tentative deal? Yeah, so where things are actually, like right at this moment, is um, that so there was a, a conceptual agreement reached, which I think means they verbally agreed to something. Um, and so last we have heard, it's still being written out, and then teachers still need to ratify it. So I think teachers right now are feeling hopeful, but we don't really know what we're dealing with. Right. <laughs> we trust our bargaining team wouldn't agree to something unless it was good. Right. But we haven't seen any of the details. So I think teachers, I get this particular moment, are just kind of holding our breath, feeling hopeful. Um, we're assuming a strike's not going to happen. Right. But we're also kind of holding out to make sure that this is the contract we want. We, we know we could strike, and we know we would win if we did. Right. <laughs> so I don't think we, anyone wants to settle for less than um, a really good contract. Yeah. yeah, so tell me, what were some of the issues that this came down to at the last minute? That um, Do you know what the, the things that the district gave in on in this deal? Or No, so we don't know. We haven't seen any of the the details to what the deal is, and I assume that will be forthcoming this evening or or tomorrow. All along, really, the issues haven't changed. Teachers have always uh, listed workload and, and class size as what's most important yeah. to them in every survey. And another one has been early retirement benefits. The district has been insisting on, on getting rid of uh, the early retirement benefit, which is teachers a stipend. If, I believe it, if they've worked for 30 years but aren't yet 65, right. they can still retire. I'm not sure. I honestly I don't know all the details how, how that works. I haven't looked into it extensively for myself yet. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's a program that saves the district money, and it allows teachers to stop teaching when they're kind of burnt out of it. And, it, and um, the district has wanted to get rid of that, yeah. which just seems kind of mean-spirited since it's, since it's something that saves them money. Yeah. And then, I mean, Kay's been part of it, but that's never been a big deal. The district and, and the union have, have always been within a couple percentage points of each other on that. Right. Um, those are, and then managerial rights um, kind of come out. That, that's, I think, the one that's hardest to talk about because it's kind of like nitty-gritty legal terms. Mm -hmm. But um, all throughout this process, there's been... Um, the district trying to create a contract that gives um, ad administration more rights and teachers less rights over things like what school to work in. Um, the district wanted to be able to move teachers at, at their desire to, to any school, any position that they're qualified for. Yeah. And um, teachers want to be able to have a say in their where they're working. Right. How long have you been teaching in Portland, and where where do you teach? Um, this is my 11th year teaching, yeah. and I am at Madison High School yeah. this year. Yeah. I read the story about the 2003 bargaining where teachers agreed to work 10 days for free, which sort of blew me away, but it also it says a lot about teachers and what the issues really are that teachers' unions tend to bargain over, that it really doesn't tend to be pay. It really does tend to be working conditions, and working conditions happen to be the conditions that your students are learning in. The argument that teachers' working conditions are the students' learning conditions, the fact that people are starting to recognize that, that that's becoming 
an issue. I mean, I know the union put forward a report that was similar to the one that the Chicago teachers did about the Mm -hmm. schools Portland students deserve. Class size is a really, you know, concrete way that that plays out. Obviously, for teachers, the more kids in a class, that's a lot more work to do to to make everything, you know, to give each kid individual attention and um, physically grading their papers and creating materials for them. Um, And for kids, obviously, that... It's the same thing. But I think there's a lot more to it than just that. Right. So, for instance, um, I was teaching at a, at a K-8 through school last year as a middle school teacher. Uh-huh. And that decision to, to make K-8 schools, well, so, I mean, this is like, there's kind of a lot of history here. But here's yeah. one way that it seems that it really rings true for me. Our district, in an effort to save money, closed down middle schools, um, and particularly in low-income parts of town, right. and created K-8 instead. And what that meant was that we have a staff of, in most K-8, there's maybe four or five teachers that teach all the subjects for, for middle school. Right. So teachers often teach four or five different subjects every day. Right. Um, like sixth grade, social studies, seventh grade, social studies, eighth grade, social studies, and a couple grades of English, and then maybe math support or um, creative writing or something also. So um, it's like the same amount of time in a day, but because the district isn't funding programs to to allow a fuller force of teachers working with a group of kids, teachers are asked to do to do more and more without more planning time. Right. And so the result, I mean, teachers are usually pretty willing to do everything that they can. Um, and if, if I was asked to teach, a, say, a math support class because there was no one else to do it, I always would say, okay, I'll, I'll take that on. But in the end, that means that kids are getting teachers that are scrimping and scrapping to put things together because maybe they're planning for five different subjects in the time that another teacher, you know, or in a more ideal situation, a teacher might be planning for one subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one way that I see that really coming out is teachers just kind of coming down to this bare bones workforce where a fewer number of teachers are taking on this very large set of roles that we believe that our kids should have access to. You know, teachers doing after-school activities, kind of creating elective classes in situations where um, there's not any teachers to teach art classes, so teachers just sort of figure out a way to <laughs> yeah. give kids that experience, even yeah. if the, the district isn't paying for it. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I guess, the union, what do you think has changed in the time that you've been there in terms of willingness to fight on some of these issues? Oh, a lot of things. So my teaching career is like exactly the span of No Child Left Behind model uh-huh. <laughs> and, and also has coincided with, you know, our, our economy tanking and, and having this kind of permanent austerity sort of thing fit, fit, um, set in. Right. So every year that I've been teaching, there have been cuts. Right. And I, I really feel like teachers have just really reached the, the end. I think teachers have been really, like you mentioned, really willing to give um, and really willing to do whatever it takes because we see our kids in front of us and we want to give them the best education. But I think we've reached this point where it's very clear to teachers that we can't give them what they deserve under the circumstances that we find ourselves in now. Yeah, I know that one of the the issues um, that was being negotiated was hiring of more teachers and that the union had a proposal for, I think, was it 175 new teachers? And the district wanted a smaller number on that. Um, Yeah. Where would those teachers have been distributed? Like what, you know, you talked about the overcrowding in, in some of these schools. Would that have gone to alleviate that? Would some of this be sort of art teachers like you were talking about? Um, Yeah. There were a few areas where the, the, the teacher's proposal made that specific, mm-hmm. like special education teachers. They were, um, our proposal was to reduce the workload, or the caseload of special education teachers right. and school psychologists and counselors by 10%. Right. And so that would change the formula that the district uses. Like I think right now, it's, uh, for instance, 
a school needs to have over 500 kids in order to have a full-time counselor. Yeah. And so that means most schools have a half-time counselor. Right. And so changing that, that formula would mean a lot of more schools, for instance, might get a full-time counselor instead of a half-time counselor. Right. And special education teachers, and, and that would mean um, rather than, I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are in the caseloads, but say... Um, right now, special education teachers, for instance, are expected to manage the cases of between 35 and 50 kids. Right. And the, the proposal, which, I mean, 10% isn't a huge, huge reduction, but it's enough that it might mean some schools go from a half-time special ed teacher to a full-time or, you know, one one special ed teacher to, to getting another teacher in there to help manage the, the load in that school. Yeah. And then for other grades... I don't believe that the teacher's proposal specified exactly how those positions would be um, hired and distributed. I don't know that we have the ability to do that because hiring is done um, at the building level. Uh And so if there was um, 5% reduction in workload, that means different buildings would have the ability to maybe hire one extra teacher in the school, and it would be up to the principal to decide if that was an art teacher um, or if that went to reduce class size, for yeah. instance. Yeah. And then, so the, the plan was to reduce teacher workload um, or class size by um, 5% in the K through 8, which is not which is kind of a modest proposal, really. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were, we're a big district, so 175 teachers, I mean, that's what that would do. And, and at the high school level, reducing it by 10%. And the reason for the difference is because the district layoffs or reduce the high school position um, by about 50 teachers a couple years ago in order to save money. Yeah. And so it's putting that back and then reducing from there. That's why there's a difference. Yeah. Um, you mentioned No Child Left Behind. Has standardized testing been a big issue in this whole fight? Um, I mean, it has, and it's a tricky issue to negotiate because there's law involved with it, and we can't, um, you know, propose something that's against the law, right. <laughs> even if we'd like to. But um, with, with part of our proposal, or part of what we were countering in our proposal is that the, the school district um, proposed that teachers be evaluated using the state law of competence, which doesn't yeah. sound like a problem, but what the state law of competence has to do with is students' test scores. And teachers are asking that the test scores of our students is only one of, um, you know, a well-rounded look at what a teacher is doing. Yeah. Um, as I'm sure you know, test, student test scores correlate with a lot of things that have nothing to do with teaching, like poverty, most notably. And so we, I mean, I guess personally I have a really big concern that when teachers are scored and rated by their children's test scores, number one, it really puts teachers in a position of looking bad when they're serving the kids that need them the most. And I I really worry that that will discourage teachers from accepting jobs at the schools where we really need um, to be encouraging excellent teachers to be. And then, of course, I mean, I think at least as big of a concern is that when teachers are are evaluated on kids' test boards, it puts... um, a lot of pressure on them to design curriculum around getting kids to do better on tests rather than being well-rounded learners, rather than loving learning um, and having joy, all all the things that basically teachers go into teaching to to give kids. And I know what, as a parent, test scores are tail in comparison to the importance of having kids who love learning and and love school. I, I spoke to some um, to Ian Jackson from the student union. Um, I spoke to some community members. But what was the feeling that that you had in terms of community support support for the union? It was amazing. Um, I have been blown away by the community support for for teachers. I had no idea that so many people. I mean, I guess I, I'm not shocked that people support teachers, yeah. but I was just amazed by how many people were willing to put in the blood, sweat, and tears to, to standing with us. Um, it, it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
And in terms of, I guess, back to the the union question, you you said, you know, teachers are just had enough. Um, But what do you think has changed for teachers unions specifically since the Chicago strike? Um, hmm. I think that the Chicago strike was maybe um, a bit of a wake-up call to teachers that we can fight back. Yeah. And also, I think, a wake-up call for how serious this is getting. I mean, hearing about the school closures in Chicago, I mean, personally, I feel like I've been aware of education reform and how it's been damaging public schools, but it kind of always seemed far away. Yeah. And um, I think in the last few years, I mean, I could, for me personally, it's really hit home that this isn't somebody else's problem. Yeah. This is right here in, in our city. I mean, part of it for me, my, the school that I worked at last year and the school my, my kids go was under threat of closure. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, the district didn't stay because of test scores, but it was quite obvious by their <laughs> selection of which schools they might choose to close. Right. It was all about test scores. And so for me personally, I think for a lot of people involved, there's just this, it's become clear that this is not a problem we're going to just be able to wait out where I think so many things in education, you do (laughs) wake them out. Yeah. What are some of the lessons? I mean, we talked about the the school's Portland's Children Deserve report, but what are some other lessons that you think you've been able to apply from the Chicago strike? And then also some things that, you know, Portland's obviously a very, very different city. Um, Yeah. Some things that you've been sort of figuring out on your own. Well, I think that... um, a, a huge lesson for me from Chicago and from what we're going through is how important it is for teachers' unions to work in collaboration with related issues. I mean, it's, there's so many things that are absolutely connected, mm. and we need to start, um, we need to continue treating them that way. Um, joblessness is connected to, uh, to education, <laughs> the test score is connected to school closures. Um, I mean, we need to be looking at issues related to poverty and education and class all together and and making huge coalitions that um, don't treat each of these issues as separate fights, but part of um, a much bigger goal of um, creating a creating a real opportunity um, and and way more equality for everybody. Well, that's sort of the end of, of my specific questions, but is there anything else that um, that you think people should know about what's been going on there, um, uh, that lessons that they can take to perhaps their school district? I think that teachers have, and maybe everybody, community members, have taken public education for granted as something that was going to be protected and preserved. And I think that, we need to, to open our eyes wide to see the, the trends across the country in public education with Obama promising to close down 5,000 schools and having succeeded so far and, and shutting down 4,000 in the last few years. Um, I think public education is seriously under attack, and it's teachers that are the, the ones that, that see this the clearest, and mm-hmm. we need to trust ourselves and our voices that we have to be, we must be a voice to defend public education. Yeah. I don't think teachers came into this profession thinking it was ever going to need <laughs> defending. Right. Um, and, and yet I think that's kind of the writing on the wall for me. And um, I think that the position that we were in as teachers in Portland this year made that clear for a lot more people. Teachers and parents and community members. So that was Elizabeth Thiel, a rank-and-file teacher with the Portland Association of Teachers. And, you know, I, I've i been joking that I'm on, like, all education all the time reporting. I did a story about the Massachusetts teachers fighting data walls. I did a story about the Portland teachers. I'm going to turn after recording this today to working on a story on the St. Paul Federation of Teachers who are pos- are taking a strike vote on Monday if there's not a deal over the weekend. We were just talking about Medford teachers. It sort of seems like 
Something going on with teachers. Something's going on with teachers. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to brag, but like, I did talk about thinking that things were going to be going off with education in our, our year in review show, but like, I didn't expect this. Yeah. This is pretty intense. Right. I mean, what it seems like almost every week there's something going there's, on right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really. Well, I, think, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I guess you know it, it does make sense in the sense that you know everyone is talking about what what's going on with the Common Core. It seems like all uh, of these incubating yeah. issues that were related to No Child Left Behind are finally sort of coming home to roost in a yeah. very real way. Yeah, um, I guess when you have national teaching standards, you get a national teachers movement. Yeah, well, um, Thank as they you, always say, the boss Common is the best Core? organizer. Right, that is um, true. And, uh, well, I, I also think that, uh, you know, here in New York, even even New York, which has had traditionally very strong teachers unions, things yeah. are, um, you know, getting pretty agitated, especially now that we have a new mayor who is ready to come to the bargaining table and who knows what's going to happen with that. Yeah, right? it'll it'll be pretty interesting to see what happens here yeah. on that front, certainly, um, especially since there have been sort of, you know, progressive caucuses organizing within the UFT here that are a little bit more militant than the union has been in recent years. Indeed. And that's a bit of a parallel, too. I mean, I don't... I don't I don't know if um, you know you spoke to a rank and file teacher in Portland, and it yeah. seems like the rank and file were really um, definitely integral to that effort. Yeah, I don't think we haven't. I didn't speak to anybody who was from a sort of parallel caucus to right, Moore right. and Core, but in general, the the teachers unions, the leadership of the teachers union, had been to the labor notes conference, had been cross pollinating. I think was the term that one of um, one of the other people I spoke to said with people from CTU, with people from Seattle, where they had their test boycott last year. Um, that you know, there's definitely conversations happening with teachers and with, across different unions, right? Um, the OEA, the Oregon Education Association, is part of the National Education Association. Um, in meanwhile, and so is the Seattle Union. Meanwhile, um, the Chicago Teachers Union in New York and the St. Paul are all part of the AFT. So we're really seeing this sort of across several unions, across several states, obviously, um, across sort of very different issues in some ways, right? Portland is certainly not Chicago in terms of demographics, in terms of income um, in terms of inequality, but there are still they're still facing school closures, um, school closures that again disproportionately hit communities of color. They're still facing the encroachment of standardized testing into everything that you do. They're still facing sort of mean-spirited attempts to just like take away things like early retirement benefits from them. Um, one of my favorite things about, or not favorite, this is a sort of horrifying story, is in 2003, which was the closest before this that the Portland teachers um, had come to a strike, they ended up agreeing in their contract to work 10 days for free. That was like, and that's, that to me sort of wraps up what people want teachers to do, right? It's like, you have to do this work for nothing. You are just supposed to do it for free and just keep working harder because that's what, you know, that's... Because it's for the children. It's for the children. We all care about the children, right? But, mm, Yeah, you know. I was actually looking on the strike uh, on the union website, and there they had surveys that had said, basically, you know, the vast majority of teachers said that their workloads had increased severely mm -hmm. or moderately to severely over the last two years. And yeah. so, you know, all of these things have been building up, and, and people don't understand. I mean... Um, they uh, want their teachers to act, you know, selflessly and sort of devote their entire whole beings to the job, and yet they don't understand that, you know, when their working conditions are so poor that it really not only afflicts the quality of the education that they provide, but also, you know, their own personal um, experiences as workers, and, and yeah. that's not really good for anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you know ha having teachers who have no control over their workload is mm -hmm. not good for the children. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, and it really... Um, I spoke to, from my article, one of the student union leaders because they have a really strong student union there. And, you know, he was like, we are going to be on the picket lines with them. Um, we have plans to make sure the students don't have to cross the picket lines because we understand that class sizes, standardized testing, all of these things are bad for us, too. Yeah. You know, that they were in support of their teachers calling for smaller class sizes, for um, lower workloads, for one of their um, – as you heard Elizabeth discussing, we, one of their requests was that they hire more counselors, more services, more, um, more special education teachers to really make sure that 
you know, all kids are getting taken care of um, to meet their sometimes unique needs. Yeah. And I mean, along with the idea of teaching to the test, I mean, you know, teachers have said that even if they've been making gains according to the new standards and the mandates that have been imposed on them, I mean, the the fact that they're being crushed in terms of their workload just means that they're going to be undoing the very gains that they were, you know, required to make. So, I mean, it's basically asking the impossible. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I really thought that um, the point that Elizabeth makes about testing and the obsession with testing actually discouraging teachers from going into the the very schools that need them the most was really telling. We hear a lot of conversations about teaching to the test, but when you really think about, like, the kids who need real comprehensive support, not just better test scores, but need a lot of things, they need really great teachers, but those teachers don't have any incentive to go work in those schools when they're more likely to be fired and told that they're not good teachers because their test scores aren't as good as the kids um, across town where the parents are more affluent and have more free time, among other things, to, you know, help their kids with homework, right. hire a private tutor when your kid isn't doing well, things like that. And provide reasonable class sizes and other things of that nature. So, yeah, I mean, and, and this kind of goes back to uh, our interview with Joanne Barkhan, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. talking about the influence of um, you know, big philanthropy and this mm-hmm. idea that they are imposing a certain idea of, you know, uh, lifting, you know, closing the achievement gap by giving poor kids what every rich kid has and, you know, how that's going to be sort of the great equalizer by sort of yeah. like, you know, lavishing money on on these things. And, and the issue but, is that yeah. you're, you're not you're not um, tackling the essential structural um, inequalities that are... Well, and in most cases, they're not lavishing money on them either. They want to bring in a charter school and skim a few kids off the top. Right. You know, it was pointed out to me that Portland doesn't have the same kind of charter school explosion that, say, New York has. But where the charter schools are is basically in communities of color. Right. That that's where those go in. And you go in and you say, I'm going to help these kids here. But you really help a few of those kids. Right. Who often are the ones who needed the help the least because they were already doing okay. And And you leave the rest of them in the quote-unquote failing public schools. Like, it's not... And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because, right. you know, the, all of those failing public schools that have essentially been left behind become, again, you know, more evidence that we need more charters and more and, right, and we need to, to close those schools because they're failing as if, you right. know, it's the school building that right, needs right. to be that yeah. is creating failure. I mean, fundamentally, I mean, the, the idea behind No Child Left Behind is essentially to leave no children behind, but in this sense, I mean, you're well, essentially <laughs> creaming off the kids who, you know, you can afford to take with you, and then truly leaving other people behind who, you know, either for whatever reason fail to make certain criteria, but the thing is, you know, the buck has to stop somewhere, and those children don't disappear, right? Yeah, it's kind of funny, because No Child Left Behind is like sort of the nicer, more inclusive name of these programs, right? Where, like, race to the top just sounds like horrifying neoliberalism. Right. But yet... That's just outright bribery. Right. But, like, No Child Left Behind was also just a really sort of Orwellian uh, name, right? And No Child Left Behind left a lot of children behind. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it was interesting, right? Uh, um, as Elizabeth said, as she's been teaching basically the entire span of No Child Left Behind, and that has come with cuts every year. It has not come with more funding. It has not come with more support. It has not come with more help. It has come with do your job with less every year. And oh, by the way, we're going to hold you accountable to do more every year, even as we expect you every single year to do with less when it came down to do your job 10 days for free. Right, right. And so what do you think it was that ultimately led to them averting a strike in the end? I mean, we don't know details yet. Mm-hmm. The teachers have to vote on their um, their contract, as right, I see right. it. So it's, it's not, not a but, done deal. We should right. be. Yeah. yeah. As Elizabeth said, we, you know, they still have to vote. They still have to approve it. They're fairly sure that they're going to approve it. But until it's actually approved, we, you know, should say that. It's not out there yet. We don't know exactly what's in it. We presume that they would not have given in because they were entirely ready to go out on strike. And they Mm -hmm. were, as Elizabeth said, very confident that they would win. Mm -hmm. So we will see in the next couple of weeks what the actual deal looks like. We will also see what happens in Medford. We'll see what happens in St. Paul. And we will see what happens in a school near you. (laughs) 
And now, long-time listeners, you know that this is the part of the podcast where we say, Arg, I wish I'd written that. And so this week, I'm going from talk about very specific labor struggles to a sort of big political issue. Um, Mike Konzel has a piece at The New Republic talking about the, the CBO report on Obama's minimum wage proposal is remarkably biased. Um, the Congressional Budget Office, of course, which is supposedly nonpartisan, supposedly apolitical, as we all know, nothing of the sort, released a report on Tuesday arguing that a higher minimum wage would cost 500,000 jobs um, if it is a 10-10 minimum wage, which Mike, of course, demolishes this argument, which is basically choosing the high end of the estimate of co- job cost for a minimum wage um, increase and the low lowballing the benefits. So when we talk about people, there's a lot of argument between economists over what a minimum wage increase would do. Of course, conservatives wring their hands and say, if you have to pay workers a couple of dollars more per hour, everybody's just going to go get robots or something. I'm, I've never been able to really make a whole lot of sense of that argument, but it's fairly clear people have also done lots of studies recently showing that the employers that pay the minimum wage tend to be very, very large ones like our friends at Walmart and McDonald's, who can fairly easily afford to give their workers a raise without batting much of an eyelash. Um, So I like this piece because Mike pretty much, again, demolishes the idea that economics is this unbiased, apolitical thing that some people just do and then it's you know, that this is absolutely empirically correctly what's going to happen, which is, you know, it's not actually how things work. Um, the science of prediction is a very, very um, unpredictable one. Right. And so the argument that Mike ends up making also is even if the minimum wage is going to cost some jobs, it's also going to give 900,000 people in the CBO's low estimate a lift out of poverty, 16.5 million workers would see a pay bump, and an additional 8 million would probably experience a ripple effect. So those are the numbers that are being sort of swept out of the conversation as everybody freaks out over 500,000 jobs being lost. Not to mention CBO estimates tend not to, for 10-year projections, tend not to be very accurate when, you know, people are only budgeting in Congress for a couple of years and then things get... Um, thrown off anyway in the next legislative session. Well, so right. The point is that the CBO is a political actor and it is acting politically in this case. Lies, damn lies and statistics. As we like <laughs> <laughs> um, so my ARG um, is going back to the education beat, um, but this time looking at higher education. And uh, when I read this piece in Jacobin, I actually thought, um, you know, not only would I wish I had written that as a journalist, but also as, as a university um, faculty member, because um, it's called Faculty on Strike, and it's by Leonard Davis and Walter Ben Michaels. Um, and they're talking about what is going on at the University of Illinois uh, Chicago Faculty Union. Um, so they, as you might have heard, um, they um, are, are, you know, get they're sort of organizing their both their tenure track and their non-tenure faculty and uh, undergoing a serious union-wide effort to, um, you know, consolidate the power of organized labor on campus. And it's actually one of the very rare sort of comprehensive um, you know, uh, labor campaigns that's going on in higher education right now. And um, this week when uh, the University of Illinois faculty went on strike, um, that it was actually a pretty monumental thing for uh, higher education in general because uh, things like major strikes are so rare on college campuses. And also because uh, and also because the way higher education labor is structured, um, you have a variety of different sectors um, operating within the faculty on a single campus. You have tenure track, non-tenure track professors, you have adjuncts, you have graduate teaching fellows like yours truly, um, all sort of feeding into giant education labor complex. And um, it is very easy to sort of balkanize the workforce and create sort of a divide and conquer situation 
situation where um, it turns out that everybody's rights are curtailed on the job because uh, the workforce is atomized. Um, what the UIC professors who penned this piece, um, you know, managed to bring to the fore is a very, I thought, salient argument was that um, essentially professors are workers, you know, and and the idea of professionalization and education labor um, has, in a sense, um, stymied a lot of efforts to think about labor on campus more broadly and how education labor is really conceived of and how it is treated and how it is valued, um, especially at a time when higher education in general is becoming more corporate, becoming more commodified. And when you have a huge number of extremely, you know, well-qualified, well-credentialed, and often highly indebted um, uh, uh, PhDs who are, are searching for to make some kind of sustainable living off of what they believed was, you know, their, their academic passion. So this all kind of circles back to that theme that we've been touching on throughout the podcast of um, what you're expected to do as a labor of love and what you're expected to do um, as your job. And, um, you know, uh, they, they end with an interesting note. They said, you know, but our professors really workers. When we were organizing, the administration kept telling us we weren't. We were professionals. And in fact, at UIC, we belong to the Illinois Federation of Teachers, which does indeed describe itself as a union of professionals. Um, but we, what we've all begun to realize is that whatever it meant in the late 19th and early 20th century, in the 21st century, that distinction is pure ideology. Professionals are workers, and professors are workers. That's a hard lesson to learn. In organizing our union in the first place, many, especially tenure-track professors, were reluctant to join, seeing themselves as the way the administration wanted us to see ourselves. As professors, we shouldn't be lumped together with public school teachers, university staff, fast food workers, etc. So the lesson to be learned from what's going on on the UIC campus uh, this week is that you know pretty much everyone is in it together, and hopefully they can get somewhere together because they sure as hell won't get anywhere when they're standing apart. The lesson every week here on Belabored. We're all in this together. Um, so, yes. And then we sing Solidarity Forever, but I'm not going to sing for you because I'm a terrible singer. Right, right. But y- you can sing it and, and record it and, and, and tweet it to us at hashtag Belabored. <laughs> you can indeed. You can even email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And Special thanks to Natasha Lewis for editing as always, the fabulous Natasha Lewis. Special thanks to our executive producer, Sarah, Sarah Leonard. And with that, we will see you next week. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag Belabored. 